Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Today on Watching Your Wealth, reduce your risk of being audited. This is Watching Your Wealth from the Wall Street Journal. Now, from our studios in New York, here's Veronica Dagger. This is Veronica Dagger, and you're listening to Watching Your Wealth, while you learn all you need to know about building your wealth and protecting your money. Bill Smith is managing director of accounting firm CBiz. Welcome, Bill. Thanks very much, Veronica. So, Bill, we've reported on this show lately that our chances of being audited have dropped in recent history. However, this is still happening to folks, isn't it? It is still happening, but it's always fun to know and give everybody a little bit of solace that the audit rates are very low still and have reached really perhaps an all-time low. The overall audit rate of 147 million returns in 2015 was only 0.84%, so less than 1%. And if your income's less than $200,000, it only goes down to three-quarters of 1%. So one of the issues is how much money do you make? But let's go on from there. Yeah, for sure. So depending on how much money you make, that could be flag your return, it sounds like. Is there a certain threshold for that? It, you know, Say if you're making more than $500,000, are you automatically put into a different bucket? Or if you have your own business, are you put in a different bucket for them to look at you? Well, if you're over 200000 and less than a million, your chances of being audited go up substantially, but it's still only a little over 2.5%. So it's up from under 1% or about three-quarters of 1% up to 2.5%. Once you go over a million dollars of income, the chances of being audited go up to 10%. So really the higher net worth, higher wealth individuals are uh, being perceived by the IRS as giving them the best bang for their buck. I see. And are people with their own businesses more likely to be audited? Oh, yes, they are. Uh, Part of that is they attribute the tax gap, which is the amount of money the IRS thinks should be paid in tax versus what's actually collected in tax. Over 50% of that is attributable to underreporting of net income by individual businesses, typically Schedule C businesses, self-employed people. And underreporting includes both not reporting income and over-reporting deductions. So that's, uh, that's an area, and even within that, a lot, of, a lot of the deduction areas will get you targeted. So that, that's a great segue. What are some of those tax deductions that automatically raise our chances of being audited? Well, you know, the IRS uses uh, what they call the the DIF score sometimes, which I always have to look this up, discriminant information function. And they have scores for different types of aspects of the return to try and flag returns for audit. And they keep their formulas secret, but we know they focus on deductions, credits, and exemptions. So for instance, if you're filing a Schedule C and your meals and entertainment expenses are way out of line with their numbers, That would be a good audit flag. Um, If you claim 100% business use of a car, that's going to be an audit flag because the IRS is wondering where you're getting around to and uh, you're not Hmm. conducting business. Indeed. Um, 
hobby losses are a big one. If you, uh, you know, if if one spouse makes a lot of money and the other spouse happens to like horses a whole lot, that's the classic example of a hobby loss where you spend a whole lot of money and you claim that you're a horse breeder and you're going to win the Kentucky Derby mm-hmm. when actually you just love horses and your business loses money every single year. That's the kind of thing they're going to be looking for. Interesting. How do you reduce your chances of being audited, though, if you legitimately are using some of these deductions? Well, you can't necessarily reduce your chance of being audited, but you shouldn't be afraid to claim a deduction if it's legitimate, even if it's outside the norm. If you have your uh, documentation, you have your backup, you did spend the money and you can prove it, then you should absolutely claim it if it's a legitimate business expense. So... I would never advocate reducing legitimate deductions to try and avoid audit. So keep our receipts. It sounds like that would be an idea. What Absolutely. else? Absolutely. You, you want to keep good books and records. That's the first thing the IRS is going to look for. And then know where your backup is, whether it's receipts, whether it's your bank accounts that show the money coming in and going out. You can always back it up with third-party information. That's the best way. How long do we need to keep our records in case we get audited? Well, the IRS can only audit you uh, for three years. They have to audit you within three years of when you filed the return unless you underreported your income by 25% or more, in which case they have six years, or if you committed fraud or didn't file a return, there's no statute of limitations. But the general rule is three years from when you filed your return. Now, some of our listeners keep money offshore, and I know that's become more of a red flag. How do we keep the money offshore and not trigger an audit? Same thing, keep good records? Absolutely. And they ask you on your 1040, do you have any offshore bank accounts? You would check that yes, obviously, and then you make sure if any of those accounts had $10,000 or more in it at any day during the year, you have a requirement to file the FBAR form, the Foreign Bank Account Reporting Form. Gotcha. Now, if we do get audited, give us some tips on how to survive it, because I would think the first instinct is freak out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, having fought the IRS for years and years and years, you know, it doesn't bother me, but I'm always playing with clients' money. But the key is just, you know, be truthful. That's the best way. If you go in there and you have taken deductions based on estimates, It's a good idea to say, I estimated these deductions. Here's the basis for my estimates. I have proof for these deductions. Here's my income. You you show them the records that you have. You you give them what they ask for. And the worst thing you can do is try and avoid them, try to delay it, try and think they're going to go away because they're not. You have to go in there. And uh, if you were a little bit aggressive, you can expect to get, you know, a little bit of a spanking. I was going to say, like, what are our odds, you know, if we are forthcoming and we deal with the issue when it pops up, what are our odds that we're going to have to pay more or going to get some sort of spanking or penalty, as you said? Well, there's a difference between the IRS saying you owe more tax and then there's going to be interest tacked onto that by statute and you really can't get out of that. You can contest it if you don't believe they're right. But assuming you agree with them that I owe another $1,000, let's say, there's going to be some interest on that. And then the question is, are you going to be subject to a penalty? And the penalties can be dramatic. They can be 20% in in the worst case scenario, 40%. So you want to 
it's one of the reasons that you want to be forthcoming and show them that you're not trying to hide the ball or you've got something to hide. You know, if, if you, like I say, if you used estimates, you should say, Here's, here is where I used an estimate. This is why I estimated this amount. Here's the reason, you know, I, I, I typically pay this amount per month. And so I, you know, instead of looking up all my receipts, I just ran that out 12 months, that sort of thing. Uh, whether an agent buys that or not, oddly enough, depends very much on the agent you get because internal revenue agents are human beings just like anyone else, believe it or not. And you have good agents, bad agents. You have sympathetic agents and non-sympathetic agents. So some of that is just the roll of the dice. Sounds fascinating. Bill, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'd love for you to take our fun tax quiz. Be happy to. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats, mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Need to check in on Wall Street? Listen to Heard on the Street and stay one step ahead of the headlines only on WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Watching Your Wealth from the Wall Street Journal. Now, from our studios in New York, here's Veronica Dagger. Welcome back to Watching Your Wealth. Now it's time for tax expert Bill Smith to take our fun tax quiz. Bill, you ready? I am ready, Veronica. All right. Best tax advice you ever heard? Well, that one, I would say, is pretty short. The best tax advice I ever heard, I think, was don't let the tax tail wag the business dog. So people get so caught up in, I'm going to save so much money on taxes, a lot of business owners forget that there are a lot of other aspects to their business where they can improve their bottom line. And you want to be smart about your taxes, but you don't want it to be the only thing you worry about when running a business. That's so true. And it reminds me of some people who complain that they made too much money in the market and they're going to have to owe all these taxes. And it's like, guys, celebrate the fact that you're doing really well. Paying taxes ooh, just ooh, an, ooh. <laughs> right an offshoot to that. Worst tax advice you ever heard? Uh, worst tax advice is is really just there's a never-ending supply of tax shelter snake oil salesmen and they've always got the best deal out there, and every single one of their deals are bulletproof, and they even have a CPA who's running the program. Man. That's what I love. Stay away from those. Fill in the blank. Taxes can buy. Taxes can buy. Oh, that's a tough one. Taxes can only buy things for the government, not for us, unfortunately. So all I can say is, you know, taxes can buy uh, roads and bridges if you spend them correctly. Then fill in the blank, taxes can't buy. Love. <laughs> if you inherited $1 million after tax, what would you do with it? Uh, first thing I would do is go to rock and roll fantasy camp with one of my, uh, you know, favorite rock and rollers. Then I would take the remainder and go on a tour of the three-star Michelin restaurants in France and then around the world. Sounds fun. Maybe you need someone to go with you. <laughs> I would I love do. to do that. All right, all right. Um, maybe my husband can come too. But besides that, thank you for joining us, Bill. 
Absolutely, Veronica. Thanks very much for having me. Good to have you. And do you have a personal finance question you'd like us to answer? Email us at podcast at DowJones.com. This has been Watching Your Wealth, a production of The Wall Street Journal. I'm Veronica Dagger. For more information, check us out at WSJ.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. Become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices.